So 2018 is almost over, which is really exciting. And right around now is the time that we start to see a bunch of lists that are published by companies. It's the best of. So I'm going to go through a bunch, probably not going to know a lot of them. Rolling Stone magazine named Drake's song as song of the year. Anybody a fan of Drake? Yes. It's going to kill it. OK, cool. It's only going to get better. So Time magazine named their people of the year the Guardians. Is anybody familiar with the Guardians? They are reporters. OK, great. Yes, we had two. All right, cool. OK, so Entertainment Weekly named a bunch of the best movies of the year. Probably some we've never seen. And Time, not Time, the New York, um, what? New York Times, thank you. New York Times compiled their list of the best books, probably a bunch of books that we don't have any time to read. But I always look at the list like, oh, if I had just buckets of time, here's what I would do. I would read some of these books. December is one of those wonderful times where we can look back on the past 12 months and figure out what happened, choose some of the best moments of the year. I'm always blown away by what happened in January, because I have a really hard time remembering like even a couple months back. So to go all the way back to January, I'm like, whoa, did that happen? Is that a real thing? If you guys remember that recording with Yanni or Laurel? Yeah, that was the thing that happened this year. Some of us would like to forget it. Some of us don't even remember it. It's fine. So maybe for you, you've had the chance to sit down and kind of reflect on your own 2018. And you have your own list of the best moments from the year. Maybe you got married or you moved to a new house. Maybe you got a new job. Maybe you had a baby. Each one of us has a list of some wonderful things. It is hard to kind of pin down just a couple moments. So I want to talk about today's scripture passage. Because in today's text, Jesus is challenged not to pick the greatest moment of the year. He's actually challenged to pick the greatest law in the whole law of God. And it's kind of like asking, out of all of the commandments, which is the one commandment that we should be sure not to break? I mean, if you're a kid and you're like, OK, mom, what is the one rule <laughs> that I should not break? It's not as crazy of a question as we might think. Jesus is asked this question by a group of people that want to trap him. This group of people is called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees diligently studied scripture. Their job that they thought was their job was to uphold the Jewish law. They were really intent on upholding the Jewish faith. And so they're constantly against Jesus in scripture because they want to ask him questions to figure out if he's from like a fringe group or if he's actually going to start a rebellion. They're really curious about who he is. So they're always asking him questions. And Jesus actually answers their question. And he does such a good job of it that it's almost like this mic drop moment. And it's just blowing their minds. And so before we actually get to his answer, I want to jump to the last verse. Because Jesus closes by saying, the entire law and all the prophets are based on these two commands. So the answer that Jesus gives informs every law and writing from the Old Testament. And when Jesus refers to the law, he means the first five books of the Bible that were written by Moses. This is typically called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in the book of Exodus, Moses gives God's commandments to the people. 
And there are 10 commandments. These are probably going to sound really familiar. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't murder. Well, out of these 10 commandments flow 613 laws that regulated the daily lives of Jews. So the audience crowded around Jesus to listen to his answer to this question. Their lives were ruled by not just the Ten Commandments, but these 613 laws. And so they're really interested in the answer to this question. And Jesus is saying that his answer addresses the essence of every law that God has given. So let's read his answer. It's from Matthew chapter 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. The greatest commandment is to love God. And people listening to this, they would have been really familiar with this idea of loving God. Because each day, Jews would recite this prayer twice a day, it's called the Shema, and it's going to sound really familiar. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. So I want to talk about that word love. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Jeff gave a sermon on Paul's letter to Corinth, and he said there are three lasting gifts faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And Paul describes a self-giving love. It's characterized by Christ-like actions. It's an all-encompassing devotion. And we tend to use the word love to mean maybe mushy feelings or love for everything on equal footing. <laughs> like I can love a hundred different things. But here, Paul and Jesus are using this word as an action. Love is a response to the love that God has first poured out on us. And love here means your commitment and obedience to following God. And it requires your whole being, your heart, your soul, and your mind, everything that you are. And so today, we're actually going to go through each of those categories to see what it means to love God. So Jesus starts off by mentioning, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart. Throughout history, people have known that the heart was a vital organ. In the fourth century, Aristotle, he actually thought it was the most important organ in your body. He thought it was the seat of all intelligence. He also thought it was the place where all motion and sensation came from. By the 12th century, people believed that the heart was the seat of all emotions. 
And today we actually refer to our heart as the place where desires and emotions live. However, according to scripture, our heart describes our inner condition. It describes what's going on inside each and every one of us. Jesus said the words that we speak come from our hearts. Unfortunately, he also mentioned that there are some truly terrible things that come out of our hearts as well. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus started with our hearts. In America, heart disease is the leading cause of death for both men and women. According to John Hopkins, someone in the U.S. will suffer from a stroke every 40 seconds. Heart disease affects the heart's ability to work properly. And I'm sure if we went around the room, many of of us would have been personally affected by heart disease, either in our own lives or in the life of a family member. Certain conditions like high blood pressure, blocked arteries, irregular heartbeat, all of these are examples of heart conditions. And often we can ignore or put off addressing our heart condition until it becomes a huge problem in our lives. Heart disease can cause pain, not just in your chest, but in your arms, in your stomach, in your jaw. It causes this pain because it's your body's way of telling you you're not getting enough oxygen. And I want to take that and transfer it to our faith. Similarly, we experience pain or discomfort when our lives are out of sync with our creator. In our faith, conditions of the heart are usually the last to be diagnosed. We definitely see the symptoms. Maybe we don't feel God's presence anymore. Maybe we don't feel like going to church anymore. We withdraw from our community. We don't talk to God anymore. And maybe we're not fully present in worship. The symptoms point to what's going on inside, a condition of the heart. The heart has a rhythm. It's kind of like an electrical system with wiring. And the wiring stimulates the heartbeat. But if the wiring is actually interrupted or blocked, your heart can beat too quickly too slowly, or you can have an irregular heartbeat. Our lives get out of rhythm or out of balance when we forget to live the life that Jesus modeled for us. Our core values here at Stonebridge are worship, group life, and service. And we didn't just pick these three because they sounded good. (laughs) We picked these three because each one of these is modeled by Jesus. Jesus often withdrew from the crowds in order to spend time worshiping God. He also called a group of followers to be with him that he could teach and do life with. And Jesus also served his followers. And then he told them to go and do likewise. So I want you to do a quick checkup. In which of these three areas do you have an irregular heartbeat? Is it worship, 
Is it group life? Is it service? And today you might hear the phrase, follow your heart. If you have to make a major life decision, you should follow your heart. So let me ask you, should I eat the box of chocolate truffles that are in the office? Follow your heart. Should I skip going to the gym and sleep in? Follow your heart. I'm going to be honest with you, it's always going to be sleep. Following your heart is actually terrible advice. Because <laughs> go with me on this. If your heart is the place where all of your emotions and desires and feelings live, do you really want those to be your guide? Because our feelings and emotions change all the time, right? Because who among us hasn't swung from one end of the spectrum to the next? And if you say you haven't, then we should talk to your family members and spend some time with them. Because our feelings and emotions can change in an instant. We can get a text message that changes our feelings. We can react to harsh criticism that changes our emotions. We can spend a really long time in a meeting at work that changes our heart. Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart. I think that given that following our hearts is truly terrible advice, what we should do instead of following our own hearts is seek to follow God's heart. Follow God's heart. There's actually one person in the Bible who is described as going after God's heart, and it wasn't Jesus. David was a shepherd, he was a slayer of giants, and he was the king of Israel. He was a father, he was a husband. He was an adulterer, and he was a murderer. So how did this guy get the title of someone who goes after God's heart? Throughout David's life, he honestly tried to follow and obey God's word. He sought to go after the things that God cared about. He didn't try to go after God's power or God's place or God's knowledge. David truly sought to obey and follow God's commands. And there were times in David's life where he certainly followed his own heart. His desire for Bathsheba was one of those moments. And then his desire to cover up what he had done is definitely another. And yet when David was convicted of his actions, he repented and he turned to God. And part of his prayer is actually pretty dramatic because he asks for God to do something that is so drastic. David asks for God to recreate his heart. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Like David, I think each and every one of us needs a complete heart transplant. We cannot wish away or work off our spiritual heart conditions. If we could, then there would be no reason for Jesus. It is only God who can create a clean heart. And it's only through a right relationship with Jesus that we are able to have a new heart. <clears throat> 
So next, Jesus says, we must love the Lord with all your soul. Well, my soul is an intangible thing, so it should be really easy, right? In popular culture, we use soul to refer to a part of our inner being, something that lives on after we die. In Hebrew and Greek, the word soul actually refers to a living, breathing being. The word soul occurs 93 times in the New Testament. And more often than not, it's translated as life. So I want to go back to our main verse. Love the Lord your God with all your life. Sounds pretty overwhelming, right? (laughs) All of your life. So let's break it down. There are so many different dimensions that go into each person. You have passions. You have dreams. You have perceptions. You have work, service, talents, skills, capabilities, weaknesses. We are to love God in each of these areas. Loving God with your soul means to devote your whole being, your capabilities, and your weaknesses to God. All that you are. So let me ask you something. What is your life worth? If you were to put a price tag on your life, what's it worth? Are you in the thousands, millions? What is your life worth? I listen to several podcasts. I really like to have it on in the background. And there's a podcast I listen to called Freakonomics. I will be honest with you, I don't care about numbers. (laughs) Care even less about economics, mostly because I don't understand it. So Freakonomics, they break down economic issues and things that are tangential to economics in a really easy way. And I was listening to it a couple months ago, and there is an episode that made me pause. I listened to these podcasts while doing a bunch of other things, but this one actually made me sit down and listen and focus on. So this particular episode was an interview with a man who has a very interesting job in the government. On the morning of September 11th, 2001, 19 men hijacked four planes, killing almost 3,000 people. And in the wake of 9-11, Congress set up a memorial fund to provide money for the family members of people who had died. And that particular Freakonomics episode that I listened to was an interview with this man named Kenneth Feinberg. Kenneth has the interesting job of determining how much a person's life is worth. After mass shootings or terrorist attacks, victims and survivors receive a huge outpouring of support, and often that includes money. And each time a mass shooting occurs, they call Kenneth. Kenneth has devised a mathematical equation that took all of these areas into account. What did the person do? Did they benefit society? How old were they when they died? 
And there are spreadsheets and spreadsheets. And you know what Kenneth has learned? Time and time again, sitting across the table in someone's house, handing them a check. You know what he has learned? There isn't enough money in the world to heal the pain that people experience when they lose a loved one. Life is too precious to be measured with dollar signs because your life matters. And if your life matters, what you do with your life matters. That's why Jesus said for us to love God with our whole life. Jesus often taught his disciples by engaging them in conversation. And he would ask them a question. And Jesus actually asked more questions than he answered, which I think would be frustrating as a student. (laughs) Just answer the question. But in one particular conversation, Jesus asks the rhetorical question of his followers. He said, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Nothing is worth more than your life. Yet so often we'll be able to trade precious moments away to pursue things that don't matter. And I find myself doing this. I don't know if you do it. Instead of doing the hard thing, having the conversation with someone, I would rather withdraw stare at my phone, watch TV. And one of the things that I hate is that my iPhone is trying to make me a better person. I love it and I hate it. Because the newest iOS update includes something called a weekly screen time report. This tells you what apps you use, how long you use that app, how long you spend staring at your phone, how many times you pick up your phone in a day. I waste precious moments on my phone. And I don't know if that's the same for you, because time passes without me actually realizing how long I've spent on my phone. And that's the thing about time. I think I always will have more. I have this assumption, like, I'll just have more time. If there's no price that can be put on your life, then that means it must be important. Make the commitment to love God with all that you are, with everything that makes you, you. You can make an impact on the world with the life that God gave you. So let's look at the last area that Jesus mentions. Love the Lord your God with your whole mind. And in Greek, the word that Jesus uses, it means to think or to reason. And the place that we do that is inside of our mind. Our brains are amazing. You can send messages throughout your body at up to 286 miles per hour. You think something, and then your body reacts. You think, and then your body stands up. And our brains are constantly processing thoughts. I don't know how they figured this out, but science says 
Research says that you can process 70,000 thoughts a day. I like to think that when I have caffeine, I actually process a lot more. <laughs> if you've ever felt that, you're like, woo, too much caffeine. I am thinking like lightning. 70,000 thoughts a day. What are those about? <laughs> I think it would be super fascinating if we could tally up our thoughts. Like, what would be at the top for you? Would it be work? Would it be kids? Would it be family, relationships, maybe how much you want to sleep, food? I think if you tallied up mine, it would be like, okay, what am I going to eat next? <laughs> and then what am I going to eat next? <laughs> Unfortunately, we can't actually tally up our thoughts. But I think it would be fascinating to see on a pie chart how many of our thoughts would be positive? How many of our thoughts would be negative? If we're processing 70,000 thoughts a day, we have a lot on our minds. It's probably why we need to sleep at night. But I think that's why Jesus wanted to make sure that we love God with our minds. In order to devote our whole mind to loving God, we need to focus our thoughts on God. So I don't know about you, but I think my mind is like a web browser. I constantly have 16 tabs open, and as soon as I close one, I think in like six different directions, and then I open two more tabs. Is that just me? Is anyone else like, do, 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 do. There's like all these tabs, and then all these extra windows open, and I'm like, oh yeah, there's something over there, something over there. It's like squirrel. It's like, woo! Yeah, okay, so glad I'm not the only one. Thank you for making me feel better. So I constantly have my brain going in a bunch of different directions. Focusing is super easy, right? Has anybody ever said that? Like, oh, no problem. Focusing is super easy. If that were true, let me ask you the honest truth. How many times have you daydreamed already in my sermon? I feel like four is a lot. I would hope it would be like two. Because I mean, I've only been talking for like 12 minutes. So that would be like, I work with teenagers, so I know that it happens. And I know that it happens with adults, too. I just think teenagers are more prone to, to show it <laughs> on their faces. <laughs> They're like, woo, adults are better at hiding it. But it happens. Focusing is super hard. In Paul's letters, he actually has a lot to say about our minds and the thoughts that we have. In almost every letter of Paul's, he says something about our thoughts, about our mind, and what happens when we don't rein in our thoughts. For Paul, he draws a direct connection between our thoughts and our intentions. In his letter to the church in Rome, he actually draws this out. According to Paul, there are two ways to live. You could live for your own desires, or you could live for Christ. And at the center of each of these ways, there is someone in the center. The question is, is it you or is it Christ? And so Paul says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit 
have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. I think if we were to admit it, living according to the flesh is a very selfish existence. Dick Wells has a friend that he often quotes, and this quote has stuck with me. His friend once said, I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. I mean, that hit home for me, because the person I spend the most time with is myself. I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. I mean, that's true. Instead of focusing on our cravings, if we focus on God and God's ways, we live in the spirit. And then we're actually able to be led and directed by the Spirit. Each one of us has a default mode in our brains. And in this default mode, you can daydream, you can recall memories, you can go on autopilot, you can think about the future. It's not that our brain isn't working, because medical research has actually shown your brain is working on autopilot. The problem is, it tends to be focused inward. We go through the motions without really thinking or processing what's happening. Tell me if this has happened to you. You've just driven and arrived somewhere with no memory of how you got there. Just a me thing. Or you were supposed to go to one place, you ended up in a different place. Like you were supposed to go to the bank and then you drove home. You're like, oh, now I'm in my driveway. How did this happen? I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not alone. Thank you. It happens to me all the time. I get someplace and I'm like, oh my gosh, was I safe? Did I even stop at that light? Did I stop at that stop sign? That's autopilot. It's bad. <laughs> Don't do it. Here's the thing, though. In default mode, we aren't active in creating or filtering the information that's being presented to us. It's kind of like trying to talk to your teenager while they're playing video games. It's like, in one ear, one out the other. Default mode takes away the intention that Paul actually wants us to focus on. He says, set your minds. Be active and engaged in thinking about God. And there's an intentionality that has to be present in our minds. Here's what this has to do with loving God with all of our mind. Autopilot only lets me think about myself. Jesus actually followed up the greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, which is definitely an oxymoron, but if you want to point that out to Jesus, feel free. So Jesus said, the second greatest is love your neighbor as yourself. If my mind is only focused on myself, I certainly can't love God. I also can't love my neighbor because I probably don't even see them. God doesn't want your autopilot. God wants your active and engaged mind. The greatest commandment is to love God and love others. Following Jesus and committing to love God 
with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind will change your faith. And so I want to challenge you with this. In this new year, make the intentional commitment to follow God's heart, to devote your whole being to God, and to focus your thoughts on God.